You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, 2,600 meters close to the stars in Bogota, Colombia. And this is episode 395 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest joins us from Toronto, Canada. Her name is Dr. Paola Cubillos. And we'll be discussing and we'll be you know, reflecting on what it means and what has happened in the five years since the signing of the peace accords with the FARC back in 2016. And we're taking it from the perspective of Dr. Cubillos' experiences with her family, a Colombian living overseas. And it's an interesting story, one definitely upon which to reflect. We'll be going over to the newscast with Emily Hart shortly. And thank you to all of those of you who signed up on Patreon uh, to sponsor and support the Columbia Calling podcast. Remember that for just $2 a month, you can subscribe to the newscast by journalist Emily Hart. And for a little more, you can support the Columbia Calling podcast and, of course, sign up for certain uh, pieces of merchandise that will come your way as a thank you for supporting the Columbia Calling podcast. So right now we go over to Emily Hart with the newscast and then we'll be back with Dr. Paola Cubillos in Toronto, Canada, talking to us uh, about her experiences in the five years since the signing of the Accords back in 2016. Don't go away. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of September 27th, 2021. Yesterday marked the fifth anniversary of the signing of Colombia's peace deal with guerrilla group the FARC. On the 26th of September 2016 in Cartagena, President Santos and Rodrigo Lodonio Echeverri, alias Timochenko, the FARC's top leader, signed the agreement that they had negotiated over months in Cuba. Between 1958 and that date, the conflict had caused more than 250,000 deaths, with more than 80,000 disappeared and millions displaced. However, according to the latest report by the Kroc Institute, which monitors implementation, less than a third of the 578 points of the agreement have been implemented. Achievements can be seen in terms of demobilisation of combatants, participation of the FARC in democratic politics, and the creation of transitional institutions like the Truth Commission and the War Crimes Tribunal, the HEP. However, it is considered by many that this government's implementation has been at best reticent, and the challenges are multiplying. The ELN, FARC dissidents and armed criminal groups like Clan del Golfo have taken advantage of the power vacuum left by the FARC and remain in conflict in many parts of the country, 
amid an upsurge in violence with killings of social leaders, massacres and forced displacement at alarming levels. This week, the HEP called urgently for new measures to protect FARC combatants and signatories of the peace deal, 37 of whom have been killed or have disappeared just this year. More than 250 have been murdered since the signing of the peace agreement. President Ivan Duca is still in New York, speaking at the UN on Venezuela, the environment and his claimed achievements in the implementation of the peace deal. He also met with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, speaking of free trade plans, collaboration on carbon neutrality and conservation projects. US Congress is seeking to put conditions on aid to Colombia. The Democrats this week introduced amendments calling for a ban on the transfer of funds for the spraying of coca plantations with controversial chemical glyphosate, which has historically been used in attempts to eradicate the crop. They also called for a ban on the sale of weapons and training to riot police the ESMAD. This veto still has to be approved by the Senate. Meanwhile, the World Bank has agreed a $500 million loan to Colombia for economic reactivation in the wake of the pandemic. It's particularly aimed at boosting small enterprise and sustainable or eco-friendly development. And with six months until Colombia's elections, the government are trying to abolish an anti-corruption law. The 2022 budget proposal published this week includes the abolition of the Guarantees Law, which seeks to prevent the politicisation of public contracting by halting all contracts at national and regional level in the months around elections. Critics are concerned that this move will open the doors to corruption in the run-up to the elections, as well as the fact of having a significant constitutional reform buried in a budget bill. The success of the move depends on plenary sessions of the Senate and the House of Representatives. Indigenous communities who protect Colombia's oldest archaeological site are under threat from deforestation by armed groups. Chiribiquete is a tabletop mountain range in the Amazon. It holds rock art up to 20,000 years old, and the site is still sacred to local communities. In a letter addressed to the president, the community authorities denounced threats from armed groups, saying they had been forbidden to oppose the logging and burning of the jungle, as well as the planting of illicit crops in the area. The prosecutor's office this week announced the creation of a unit against deforestation in collaboration with USAID to strengthen the investigation of environmental crimes and improve protection of environmental leaders. And the National Strike Committee, who led the Paro protests earlier this year, are calling for a new mobilisation on September 28th. The committee demand the passage of the 10 bills they presented to Congress, including universal income and job creation, and they are protesting against the tax reform and the National Budget Bill. Meanwhile, coronavirus cases have levelled out in Colombia. New daily cases have been at around 1,500 since early September. More than half of Colombians have now had one dose of the vaccine. Meanwhile, a third are fully vaccinated. Those were your key stories for the week. Thanks for listening. This is segment three of episode 395 of the Columbia Calling podcast. My very special guest this week is Dr. Paula Cuillos, who is in Toronto, Canada at the moment. She's a doctor. She holds a PhD in integrative medicine. She works in the cannabis field, medicinal, medicinal marijuana, I believe, and business. And, well, we've been following one another on Twitter. And then she pointed me to an essay or a letter, in fact, that she wrote and published in Spanish on medium and it's really it's kind of a farewell letter 
from Dr. Paolo Paola to Colombia. And I want to talk about this because it's, well, we're five years in now after the peace accord, 2016. It's the fifth anniversary and your letter has so much to do with it. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you, Richard. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to to talk to you about this and uh, to um, know that uh, some people will be listening to to this conversation and that hopefully they'll get something good and interesting out of it. Well, it's the idea. We get more than a couple of thousand listeners per per week in Canada, mainly in the U.S., over 10,000 and so. But, but uh, I mean, you know, we get out there. But the idea is to share news and share ideas about Colombia that perhaps aren't covered in all of the other mainstream press. And, you know, we get to talk quite freely about these things. And what I want to start with is to give the background is that you left Colombia in 2002 for Canada. And then, of course, you, you know, you became a professional in Canada. I guess you were married up there or married in Colombia. I don't know. Either way, you can you set me right. But in August 2016, you decided to come back. Now, that's right around the time just before the peace accords were signed, August 2016. So you were feeling, uh, 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 you were feeling the positivity, and there was this overwhelming feeling of positivity. And we were just like Colombia, it's a new country, and those images that we will never forget of the guerrillas leaving the jungles, and then the idea of them handing in their weapons. And Colombia, we knew there were going to be problems. We all knew there were going to be problems. There's more than one guerrilla group in Colombia. There are all sorts of illicit economies in the country. But this was such a big step. And you decided, I'm moving down here with my husband, who's from Cali. You're originally from Armenia. We're moving to Cali. I'm bringing my three children to grow up. Wow. And so, I mean, this. tell us about that moment. Tell us about that feeling. I mean, to, to just this, it's something of, of elation, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, as an immigrant, you're always looking back at your country and checking in what's going on. So you never forget your roots and you never forget, you know, Christmases, what they used to serve you at Christmas and the warmth from family and just getting together. So we, we figured that around that time, it was the perfect opportunity to say, okay, this is the chance that we're going to give Colombia. Of course, as you mentioned, there's such a huge enthusiasm and, and the sense that the country was going to turn a page and to take full advantage of the opportunity that the peace accords were providing. And also, uh, you know, from up here, the, the, the media coverage was quite positive as well. Lots of international attention. You could feel that President Santos had really the support of the international community. And that started infecting us in a way. So we, we talked about it, even though my husband and myself had our professional lives here figured out. And uh, I, I was uh, in the in the cannabis field at the time, so I figured, you know, Colombia is already making strides into uh, legalizing medical cannabis, so I might as well just go get down there and utilize that experience and just educate physicians about it. So we figured it was just the right time, and also, uh, you know, the kids were sort of transitioning from uh, elementary school into middle school, so we thought, okay, this is just like the perfect moment. We decided to pack our bags, sold our house. Uh, and we moved down to uh, Cali in mm. August 2016 with lots and lots of excitement, lots of expectations. Um, we just brought, you know, the bird minimum and uh, we just settled in in, in Cali, uh, which is, you know, where my husband's from. But also we just wanted to take the opportunity to land in a place that was friendly, 
that was not as chaotic as Bogota. <laughs> we, we knew people, we uh, knew family, we had family there. We knew it was going to be a challenge because we moved to the suburbs as opposed to the city where we lived in Toronto. So that mm-hmm. was going to be a change. But other than that, we were just so happy to come back and enjoy just the warmth all year round. Well, that's it, isn't it? No more winters. <laughs> no more winters. And of course, Cali is such a, it's such a seductive city. And to set up, and I know that there's a lot of, there's, there's, um, I would say biological entities that work in 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 cannabis down there, and of course there's there's a there's a setup, isn't there, just outside near the airport and so on, where people are studying uh, medicinal marijuana and things like that. It's it's you know so it's a, it was the right place for you. Absolutely. So so Cali offered many opportunities, like workwise as well. As you mentioned, there are. Um, big agronomical centers that are studying uh, cannabis and other uh, plant seeds. So um, it was great to land there. Uh, Although I have to say that Cali wasn't my home base. My kids and my family were there, but I was traveling all over the country. So I spent just the weekends mainly in Cali (laughs) and uh, while the kids were going to school and whatnot. So we were able to meet just lovely people and just get together with family again and just to enjoy those few months first few months of you know having the sense that uh, we were going to make it happen and the country as a whole was going to make it happen so so yeah so the sense was hope the sense was opportunity uh what we brought into colombia and um over time you know we just just came to a a hard realization that things weren't going to be as rosy maybe we were too uh, naive at the time uh, but we knew that it was going to be more challenging as we started to get to know more people and just listen to diverse viewpoints about the idea of a peace accord under those conditions that uh, most of the country didn't approve of, they found out later. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of things. I, I just, I mean, that, I want to reflect slightly on that period between sort of August when you arrived and then the signing, which was in September, and then, you know, the, well, let's say the first signing, and then and that whole period up until we get to the referendum, but we get that, that whole period, there was just this, it was as if a, a weight had been lifted off, like the collective burden of Colombia. We're like, you know, we really can do this. We really can, despite the naysayers and despite the people against it, you know, talking about impunity and talking about, we were going to become Venezuela and talking about all these things that just kind of seem still they still seem far-fetched to this day but that's my politics there speaking but at the same time there was just this feeling you know and i had businesses of course in tourism and and everyone was going crazy and then it was aiming towards you know 2019 which was the best year ever in colombia's tourism industry and so you're sort of like oh wow and then that referendum happened. And of course, there are all sorts of things around it. There was the, was it Hurricane Michael up on the Caribbean? So people didn't go out and vote. And then there were other things. And yeah, okay, so it was 51 no, and then 48.9 or something yes. And I had been out in my car driving around. I wanted to take pictures of everyone with flags. I ended up taking photos of people crying. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, how did you feel there? Because you you had you had you know bet everything. You'd gambled Absolutely. everything. Absolutely. I'm taking uh, my children down. <laughs> yes. So so there was a bit of that, but also. Um, for us, we didn't register to vote. We were not registered to vote in Colombia. So we were sort of 
um, very hands off in the whole process because we were witnessing everything very so closely. The minute we landed in Colombia and we started learning about what people's ideas were about this referendum and what it was going to bring to them, like these uh, crazy ideas about these uh, this homosexual ideology that was going to be taught in schools and then other um, all kinds of misinformation that people were listening to and hearing. And I would hear this from, you know, uh, people that I would work with mm -hmm. and uh that probably didn't have um, the education to understand that they were being fed lies. Mm -hmm. So that was quite shocking to me. That was the first time that I ever encountered misinformation being used for political purposes. So that was really new to me. I know it's been happening for a long time, but not at that level and not mm -hmm. to that extent. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, point number one. And number two, uh, you know, on that referendum day, just watching the television and seeing that the big cities were voting completely different from the places that, witnessed and lived through all that violence mm -hmm. for uh, so many decades. Mm -hmm. So that was really disheartening. Um, you know, we call it uh, this phenomenon, the hangover effect after after that day. And we just continue living and relieving clearly like a PTSD situation mm -hmm. because we can, some of us, like so many Colombians, cannot believe that that actually happened. Mm -hmm. That because of misinformation, because of lies, people didn't really uh, want it to um, take that extra step. And I know it's hard and I know it's difficult. And this is the moment where I have to say that I, I do understand the pains that Colombia had gone through and the pains of many Colombians that they're affected by all these violence, that have been affected by all these violence in so many different ways. So of course there's going to be resentment. Of course there's going to be resistance to change. Um, but for me, like for people in the cities who haven't, yeah, they've lived it. Of course, they lived in, in Medellin with the bombings and in Bogota with the bombings. And you get, of course, the uh, the end um, of the spectrum from the drug violence. Like you see the, the petty crime and all of these things happening from the drug trafficking in the cities. But you don't, you have not been displaced from your home. You mm -hmm. haven't been, you know, you haven't needed to run you just with your two kids and just a bag with just a very minimum mm -hmm. living and fearing for your life. So that's, that I couldn't understand. I still to this day cannot understand how we cannot put ourselves in another person's shoes and understand that this is the chance that we had. But it was what it was. We cried and cried for so many days. Um, it was quite it was quite depressing. It was quite depressing. But anyway, it's just it just was what it was. And then that was really a result. Um, and in a way, this gave a little bit of a lift to that opposition party. That said, you know, you shouldn't have done this. This is not the right way to do this. Uh, if you're going to if you're going to still enforce these peace accords, why did you run the referendum? Mm. Like, why did you have to go through that? Are you not going to listen to the people's will? Right. So so that was a conversation. Um, so it was it was difficult to accept that that's what it was. So at that moment, we knew this is not going to be easy at all. So we'll see what happens. It's, it's interesting. It's a curious I know, situation. And some months ago, I had uh, an investigator uh, called Andres Bermudez on the show, and he actually helped write parts of the peace accord. He was there in Havana. And and we had, you know, of course, it's not, not an argument because we both agreed. And so we were just agreeing about things. But he said, you know, OK, so the referendum was voted no. So the peace accord got sent back to be reworked. And of course, one of the pages, again, appealing to the uh, evangelical Christians was to take out, like you said, the, the, the gender based uh, uh, inclusivity. 
uh, and so on, and it was taken out. And all of these things were taken out, and everything was amended, and then it got passed through Congress. So when people say, when, when the opposition say to me, oh, yeah, but it, you know, you're not listening to the people's will, it's like, it was sent back and change before it went through Congress. So I realize it's not 100% clean, <laughs> it's not 100%, but it did go back. And all of the points that were brought up for, you know, for, for, because the context were not appropriate for the opposition, therefore, they were addressed. And so I feel, well, you know, anyway. So, but you were there, and we, I mean, I know that for one, my wife said, I don't know if I can live in a Columbia I don't know if I can live in this Colombia. And I was so down as well. I was just like, ah. Oh. But my country had just gone through Brexit. <laughs> so I'm just like, I'm not going there. Uh, I have, I hold Canadian citizenship. That's right. <laughs> I hold Canadian citizenship, but I was like, but I'm not going to Canada when Trump's got voted in. So, <laughs> so it was like a hard year. <laughs> I know that Canada... It was know, really hard, yeah. I know, but being neighbours before anyone picks me up on that, I know, but it was just hard. I didn't want to go to North America, let's say, with this. So um, we stayed and everything was, you know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't the end. We, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. were disappointed. This is the truth. Mm-hmm. But, but life went on. Uh, uh, but like you said, this victory in the referendum gave them the impetus, didn't it? The Centro mm-hmm. Democratico. And of course, then you've got left versus right in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the elections. You had uh, Ivan Duque against uh, Gustavo Petro. And the stigma attached to any leftist candidate mm-hmm. is what's really going to happen at the end. Uh, we know that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I fully mm-hmm. and wholly understand that. And, and of course, the, mm-hmm. the misinformation and so on. But I understand that Colombians and many will be like, we are worried because of where it comes from. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you, I want to put it back in, in, your, in your case again. The elections happened and it was, let's say that there were sort of six things. I don't know, I'm making up that number. There, but first, the referendum. And then we had the elections, and the elections mm-hmm. went the way of the Centro Democratico. <laughs> you started questioning the move, I think. You said, this is 2018 now, right? So we've moved well, on two years. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be that it ended up being, actually. Um, I, I knew that because of the results in the referendum, uh, it was going to be very difficult to shake that off and for any left on centrist candidates to actually take that post. Mm. So I knew it was going to be Centro Democratico. This guy, Duque, like, he just didn't seem like a major threat to anything. Now we know that <laughs> it is a huge threat to put somebody who doesn't have any experience whatsoever and a total inability to step up and actually do the right thing. Mm. Um, so at the time, it just didn't seem so bad. It just, I just thought it was just the normal way that it's going to go. You know, Juan Manuel Santos was pushing a really progressive agenda. I remember under, even under Alejandro Gaviria, um, he's a minister of, of health. Actually, the, the marijuana, the medical marijuana law was assigned and he was pushing conversations for euthanasia and uh, pushing many progressive conversations that I thought, you know, coming from a progressive country, I thought, okay, this is, this is really looking in the right, the right direction. It's, just, it's more aligning with probably a better social policy as a whole for the country. We're not going to be fighting the guerrillas anymore, so we're finally going to be able to really build from the base and provide Mm -hmm. for a good country for everybody so nobody's left behind. But then Duque won and said, okay, well, this is is just the natural way that things are going to go. It's Mm -hmm. it's okay. The guys, I said, didn't seem like much of a threat. But then the killing started. 
and the the social leader started to get murdered, and then he wouldn't say anything. And then the um, the ambientalistas, so people who defend the environment, the, the, the environmental leaders, also started to get murdered at an alarming rate. And, the, and then people who belonged to the FARC also being murdered quite significantly. Then I thought, okay, so this guy really is not going to do his part. He's not going to play the game. He could have, you know, just said, forget about ideology. I'm just going to do the right thing for the country. It might be that he could have uh, reformed a few things here and there that he didn't like in terms of the HEP and and, and um, so the special jurisdictional um, body that was supposed to process uh, the crimes that were coming from the, um, the longstanding guerrilla. So anybody who wanted to sign for that process who had participated in the violence in Colombia for a long time, he could have amended some of that, but he just decided to just disregard completely in my mind. And I, again, again, I'm, I'm not speaking from a knowledgeable you know, physician. I'm just a physician who mm-hmm. has you know, the social angle and who wants for their kids to have a good life and uh, for uh, my kids to witness that it's a country that I could provide for everybody. But that was not that was not the case under this precedent. And uh, so for for three years, uh, we just kept getting the news. It just murders and massacres and then the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again. So and he wouldn't he wouldn't do much about it. I, I remember uh, one of his um, defense ministers, Botero, mm-hmm. that he was quite confrontational about it, uh, quite a controversial character as well. Um, and there were, you know, instances of, of children being murdered, uh, fighting the stupid war. Um, so, so it just didn't seem like he wanted really to do things right. And that's where it, 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 we are where we are <laughs> right now as a result of all of that uh, inability and unwillingness to to play the part. Yeah, it's, it's that thing, isn't it? It's just it, at no point during, let's say, the when, when it was fully reported, because I think a lot of it's not being reported now, because I think, or we're not seeing it because we're just so familiar with it. Uh, but like you said, when we talk about the environmental defenders, it was 2019 Global Witness had Colombia as the worst country with 64 environmental defenders being killed in 2020, 65. I wrote a piece just last week, I think it was for the Globe and Mail on this end. But you sort of, he never stood up. Duque never stood up and took a stance. And then when he did, it was just militarization. And having spoken to experts uh, based in Buenaventura and other places in Tumaco, it's like, well, yeah, they send another, I don't know, 6,000 soldiers down and they police the same stretch of road. Uh, and so they're not even, in, you know, getting involved in stopping the gangs or stopping it. And of course, militarizing does not bring to an end the pre-existing social situations. You know, these need to be addressed, and they were largely addressed on paper, at very least, in the peace accords. I mean, this was part of the thing, the part of the deal. And so, I can only understand your, 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 you know, this hope starts to drop and drop and drop. So, and then we get into. So I'm sure you can hear my child in the background. Uh, but then we get into uh, 2021, well, 2020 in the pandemic and 2021. August 2021, That's you said, that's it. That's it. And you, you guys upped and left. Uh, but it was a combination of factors. Uh, it wasn't, um, I mean, the decision was made quite suddenly, but definitely we saw... Um, 
the, the not not just the hope but the possibility as well unraveled very quickly uh the minute that the country was put under strain under this amount of strain mm-hmm. by covid so um realizing that people people who could perfectly stay home and chose not to mm-hmm. who had every possibility to work from home or to just stop the potting for a few months mm-hmm. and they didn't want to um, I, I can totally understand that these are really trying times. And this is, this is something that psychologically, uh, we were not prepared to face. Mm-hmm. So of course, everybody's going to deal with things in the way that they can with the best resources they have. But for a lot of the people or the peers in my community, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. So again, it was another, um, expression of how little they care for others. That's the way I took it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so that's a hard pill to swallow for me because as a physician, you know, you, um, you make so many sacrifices and I don't want to put myself as the martyr out there or anything of that. My profession is just, you know, the highest calling there is in the line, but, but you're used to making sacrifices Mm -hmm. and you're used to, you know, shoring up your resources to be able to everybody to pull together and just get to a common goal. Mm -hmm. And that's what I saw again and again and again in Colombia over the past five years. I have to say that, you know, Canada is not that much different. People are, you know, who they are and they sometimes they agree with the idea of working together uh, towards uh, achieving something together. But, um, but it was just that, being down there at that time that demanded so much better from all of us. Mm. And so many of us were not willing to just put our part. And I'm not saying about folks that need to go out and, and, you know, they make a daily living and Mm. and they just cannot stay home because they have to go and sell a trinket or two to be able to bring back home the bacon and to feed their families. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people in well-off neighborhoods, that just continued living their lives as if nothing was happening throughout this pandemic. So, so, so to me, those expressions of selfishness, I still, I still do not understand. And they're just very difficult for me to, to, um, to swallow. But at the same time, um, you know, the, uh, the way that the government dealt with the pandemic, of course, all governments sort of hesitated at first as to what to do because not, nobody knew what to do. Like the, the science was just coming on and was just very sudden, very quickly. And there's always this tension between, you know, keeping people safe, um, mm. quote unquote, and then the economy, which, uh, you know, for many people who tended to antagonize against my position on social media, it was, you know, if you if you put them, if you lock them down for so long, of course, the economy is going to suffer. And of course, they are going to suffer as a result. And that's what we're seeing right now. Mm. But the, the response was so inconsistent. And again, this I think this um, lack of solidarity or uh, people's uh, maybe not wanting to trust the government and not wanting to listen willfully to what the government's directions were. It's just a reflection of years and years and years and not of not building that trust with the people. So yeah. uh, so that was that was very sad. But of course, we knew. And, and that around that time, I remember June, July, having this conversation with my husband. I, I told him, you know, this country is not going to be like in good shape after all of this ends. And it hasn't ended, really. Uh, so it, it might be time to start thinking about, you know, what what's going to happen, because yeah. in Cali, where we lived, you know, there's this confluence of so many social factors. Uh, it's not just um, the uh, the migrant communities from Nariño, from El Cauca, that have been displaced by this longstanding war in Colombia, from El Pacifico, from El Chocó. 
but also we have uh, Venezuelans as well arriving to the city. So it is it is just like a pressure cooker. And you would see people like more people out into the streets, like just asking for money and just just people just piling up in the corners in the traffic lights, just like trying to make ends meet. So um, so we knew it was going to be hard for that particular city to to deal with the pressures and with the stresses. And then, um, but even before that, no, in November, I don't know if you recall the, the protests, November 2019, oh, yeah. oh, uh, this yeah. big social movement. And uh, around that time, there was also, um, you know, a big social unrest of people were out in the streets. And this is before COVID. Uh, and they were trying to, to make the case for better social policies, for mm-hmm. better, you know, for a government that really looks after its own people. And uh, my community's response was to um, be frightened and to uh, spread rumors on on WhatsApp that got us all scared. And that's the first time that I saw that the people in my community in the south of Cali were so heavily armed because Mm. I know the weapons and I saw the weapons and I would hear, (laughs) I would get this uh, you know, there's uh, messages on WhatsApp saying, no, don't worry, we're armed, we have these guns, and blah, blah, blah. And I just couldn't believe that that, um, I guess, way or that, mm. I guess it's just a level of threat that people feel that I, I wasn't never exposed to. Mm. And I guess I can I can understand that because they've lived with the, uh, with the, um, the back tail or the tail end of the drug trafficking issues for such a long time. So people fear that uh, at any time a war is going to erupt so they're ready for it mm. so then you know it uh, over time it's just a situation that deteriorated more covid was never really under control and then we get to the events from last uh, uh, april and may so, yeah, so you mean the 2019 pre-covid protests yes there was violence but there was and honestly honestly without being far-fetched the government looked very in a very precarious state uh, i think that a lot of us and certainly people who watch the politics here said you know actually covid kind of saved this government because it got people back inside uh, uh it, it was in an incredibly uh, wobbly situation and so of course everything was on hold but as you say the pressure cooker building up between 2019 and two. 2021 and Cali, you know the, the the gap between haves and haves and have nots, and of course South Cali, North Cali, Siloe, as we know, Aguas Blancas, places like that. These are the ones. These are the people who suffer the most. The ones who are, as you say, have to get out every day just to earn a few thousand pesos to ensure they've got, you know. Uh, a soup or something. These are the ones who have to, and and of course, Cali. It made. I don't mean to say this in a positive way, but it made absolute sense to me that Cali should be the the focal point in this situation. And and so that you were there during this. I mean, this. The, how can you give us a little, just a little bit of? Uh, I mean, you're in you're in South Cali. So were the roads blocked near you? Were you? Did you feel at threat? So they were. But, uh, but I, just let me just start a little bit uh, before that. Um, I don't know if you recall when they called for the protests again, regardless of COVID, COVID mm. was still raging and people didn't care. They just said, we're going to take to the streets 
and we're going to have our voices heard. Uh, so, um, and, and as, a, as a consequence of those unfinished business of these protests that were happening in November, as you mentioned, the COVID just put a stop to all of that, but the situation just got worse over yes. time. There were some subsidies that were being handed out by the government, but they were not considered to be enough. And obviously they were not enough. Uh, I think the poverty rates in Cali just shot up significantly. I cannot tell you an exact number, but it was something ridiculous, like 50 or 60 percent mm-hmm. of the population were living in poverty in Cali. And yes, uh, the the difference between the affluent um, people who live in the west of the city or in the south of the city versus everything else it, is quite it's quite a big gap. So you have it right there and then, you know, the perfect recipe for, for a social disaster. And um, so when when the protests were called, I, I can't recall exactly what name what date this was. I remember the first thing that I saw, I just opened my, my Twitter because that's what I do first thing in the morning. And some people were toppling Sebastián de Alcázar, who founded the city. So a statue of this um, Spaniard who founded the city of Cali. He just conquered everything around it. And apparently then I learned that it was a really violent figure and they had, you know, done horrible things to the women, the indigenous women from that region in Colombia at the time to found the city. And to see that there was so much like admiration and so many of the wealthy people were upset about this toppling of the statue. And I thought, huh, isn't that interesting how they're all of a sudden they just they're just wanting to make this their 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 cause in a way, right? Mm. That they they thought that it represented them, that it was so important, so significant. When it was the same indigenous people coming from El Cauca, just toppling the statue to say, well, this guy shouldn't be here at all. He's been a murderer. He's just uh, ransacked our communities. He shouldn't be here. But it was such a big controversy in the city. And then we started hearing you know, other expressions of intolerance by, I remember somebody from the Cali Zoo who went on social media to say, well, the indigenous people shouldn't be here at all because they don't belong to in the city. So we shouldn't welcoming them. You shouldn't be welcoming them. So things like those. Um, and then the protests started and there was the, this big clashes and confrontations between people protesting and the police. We also, all around the world, is demonstrations of police brutality that Joshua talked to you about uh, a few days ago. Um, so to hear that people in our communities were comfortable with that idea of the police abusing and using force to that extreme, to the point of there were talks of disappearances and uh, people unaccounted for and uh, people that, you know, young people going on social media to say, if I was the mayor of the city, I would just go and shoot everybody because they don't deserve to be interrupting our peace, interrupting the traffic flow, interrupting the fact that we uh, we need to go to school or we need to go grocery shopping or whatever. So this really violent expressions of intolerance that I that I was quite shocked to hear. Um, I, I felt, and I don't want to sound, you know, too too crass here, but but it, but I felt like that mentality from the south of the United States, like it just everybody should be armed and they have the right to defend themselves. And I just didn't. And I have to say this, and I have to preface this by saying that I'm not from the city and I'm not from Cali. I'm just speaking as an outsider living there for just five years. So I'm, I I don't I don't have a handle on the social issues and the history. But but to me, it was quite shocking to hear young people saying. It is our right to go and shoot 
people who are demonstrating, who are blocking, who are fighting with the police, and we need to side with the police, even though they're doing, clearly we see them doing horrible things. Um, so so that percolated, like it was just a daily occurrence. And then we had Siloe and the clashes in Siloe. Um, yeah, police, for whatever reason, just coming and trashing the memorials that uh, they were being put up for the people who had been murdered from that community. And then throughout the night, uh, the gang violence, um, in a way, also clashing with the police. We would hear about all these clandestine re- uh, places where the people who were protesting were being held um, without any representation of any kind. Nobody knew what these places were. Uh, and then we hear on a weekend that the uh, people from um, the indigenous communities from North del Cauca were coming into the city. So, of course, they have to travel across mm. El Sur de Cali, this is the south of Cali. So that's the main entry point. Uh, and then, uh, well, we, we all knew it was going to happen. I think it was May 9th. It was a Mother's Day, the official Mother's mm. Day, and not the Mother's <laughs> Day that President Duque decided to postpone two days, uh, yeah. two weeks after. Um, and then people in the community are saying, yep, we're going to go and we're going to um, make to take a stance and we're not going to let them through. So the people from my community, they just with their big cars and armored vehicles, really, they just went and they blocked and they got it to a standstill with these people who were peacefully coming into the city to join the protests and their big, colorful buses. And then you hear that on social media, they're um, live uh, broadcasting what's going on. And then um, I, the next thing I know, that there's shotguns going you know, everywhere. And this is just two blocks from where I lived. I, I, we were not part of all that movement that were blocking people, mm. but we would hear the gunshots and they would, and I would be seeing them on Facebook. Mm. And then I thought, you know what, guys, I, I told my three kids, they're teenagers. I think it's safe to say that we need to sort of take cover because I don't know what's going to happen. They would hear the helicopters whirling around and then the heavier guns being deployed, uh, tear gas all over the place. So this standstill lasted for about, I don't know, 45 minutes, an mm. hour. Um, and then once this dust settled, uh, we realized that it was the same people from our communities, like our neighbors, the people who send their kids to the same school that we send our kids, decided, and, and the schools in the vicinity, who decided to just go and shoot people. So one, I, I looked at the videos afterwards, and it felt to me like we were watching like one of those, um, a replay from uh, this uh, this game that my kids play, um, the... Uh, the I, shooting game. I forget the name uh, now. I don't Fire. Know. <laughs> uh, what? I one of those things. Yeah. So, uh, so one uh, like shooting people. They were just going and the shooting uh, randomly, uh, just because they felt they they had the right to. And then you would he- see them again into the Harbin, just a little bit more north from where I was. Again, um, people with no fear, no hesitation, just showing their guns, the huge long range guns. So you think, why on earth would a citizen have those weapons? And then seeing the police walking alongside of them, not saying a peep, not saying anything. Mm-hmm. There were people who were injured. Uh, nobody uh, was murdered that day. Uh, people heavily and, and severely injured. Um, and um, so that was that. And from that confrontation, again, um, um, that was uh, started by my neighbors. Like there hasn't been any arrests. Um, we all knew where the people were hiding, like the people in the white shirts and, and just look up the videos where they were hiding, uh, where they, maybe you could be safe to say that you knew where they left because that's when they went to hide. 
and uh, some of the indigenous communities went and they were trying to to look for people who were shooting against them. Uh, but um, but no arrests have been made. So clearly the balance is very tipped towards one side. And uh, so that day I, I told my husband, we have to leave. This is not a safe place for us uh, right now. And then something else happened in Ciudad Jardín about three weeks later that, uh, you know, it was more, more of the same, like more long range guns, the protests happening, people in the wealthy communities and the white shirts going and shooting um, just because, they just said, we cannot have people protesting around us. We don't want them in our, in our communities. Um, so there was this clear sense from the central government that they just wanted to support the wealthy um, and not necessarily understand the, the cries and the calls from the people. When President Duque finally decided to visit the city of Cali, the first place he visited was the south of Cali. So Ciudad Jardín, where all these horrible things have been happening. So that is a really clear message that they just, um, they, he just didn't care to, to even pretend to uh, understand what was going on in all, all these places, Puerto Resistencia, Siloe, in all these places where people were congregating and in a way disregarding any police presence. And they just established like all these communities on their own. They were looking after one another. They were, had these big community pods where people could come and eat. I recall very vividly uh, some of the, um, the young people protesting, saying that they were eating better in those days that they would have eaten um, throughout the pandemic because they were being looked after. So with a sense of community of people coming together, looking after their own. And so the government just didn't didn't want to pay attention to to those um, mm-hmm. people who are really struggling. I, I have a couple of questions on this because, you know, the these confrontations took place within about two blocks, let's say, of, you, of where you live. Did you ever feel at any time then that your, I don't know, compound, wherever you live, was going to be overrun by rioters, that the, the, the weapons were necessary to defend your home and things? Did you ever feel this? It's like, oh, thank God. Oh. <laughs> because, I mean, I well, hate weapons, so it's, you know, I would rather not have any. <laughs> so when the first talk of arming ourselves happened in November 2019, all we had was the broomsticks that's good. and knives at home. <laughs> like that's, that's all we had. Uh, and came uh, April and May, we didn't have any weapons, but there was a conversation going around uh, in the community that uh, you needed to arm yourselves and you needed to be prepared. Many, um, for the people who are listening in Colombia, um, or at least in Cali, in Bogota, less so. People live uh, in in, in um, gated communities, so you cannot really see what's going on inside. So it's pretty safe mm-hmm. in a way. But if you have like a horde, like a horde of a hundred people, of course they're going to topple down that the gate, mm-hmm. and people are going to come in. But I never felt that that was going to be the case. Uh, the neighbors were fearful though, and they hired extra security for a number uh, of days. And there was this sense as well, because the roads were blocked mm. and we couldn't get groceries for such a long time. Like, it's just a desperation of people that you could feel. Like mm. they were feeling um, kidnapped. That's mm. the word they used. We are being kidnapped by these people who are blocking the roads. They do not let us go through. And of course, when you have such a divergence points of view, that tension is going to boil up and um, it's going to 
end up in something like what happened on, on May 9th. Hmm. But but I, personally, my husband and I, we never felt that that was going to be the case. We felt that probably uh, looting was going to be something hmm. that might have happened just because people, not just the roads around us, but around the city were blocked as well. Hmm. So, so groceries and uh, perishable goods were just running out very quickly. Hmm. And uh, we thought that looting was going to be a more likely result than actually just people coming into our houses for whatever reason. Mm. And, and uh, we haven't discussed it, but how did your children react to all of this? I mean, they're teenagers, but it's, it's quite formative years. Absolutely. Um, so, so the first um, touch of reality that they got is uh, when they sat down on an Instagram live and they were, because at the time when the protest started, there was a lot of social conversation mm-hmm. around what's going on here in our city. So there was a group of, uh, of young people who came together doing an Instagram live and uh, there were people from different schools, different mm-hmm. high schools and yeah. universities who were chatting and they would just give the microphone to whomever wanted to express their hands and voice their opinion. And, and one girl, um, she was the one who openly said, if I was the mayor of the city, I would just go out and shoot everybody who was rioting and mm. just doing all this a disaster. And then they, they came to me and I'm like, wow, really? Somebody felt like somebody who's what, 18, 19, uh, having the, um, the latitude to say things like that, that to me was really shocking. They was quite shocked by that. So that was the first taste that they got of, of, of such a um, an opposite viewpoint of what they would normally think of preserving human life. Like <laughs> you know, you, you, and there's there's law, there's law enforcement, <laughs> and and you leave it to law enforcement to decide whether the people who are writing or they're you know they're trashing the city, they need to go to jail and they need to be processed beautifully. Um, so that was the first thing. So on, on May 9th, uh, when these things happen around us. Uh, they were quite shocked, but but I think it was more because I was making them more shocked or more scared than they should have been. I don't know. I was just really afraid um, that uh, the windows were going to shatter. Uh, and I was just, just checking on the news all the time to see what was going on. Uh, but we heard the gunshots. And after that, you would hear like a loud bang and not knowing if it was fireworks or guns. Mm. That is the first time that I noticed them just trying to ascertain whether it was one or the other. That thought has never crossed their mind before. Mm. So they have that already. They mm. know they know what a gunshot sounds like. And I know many people around the world do know this. But but now, and is this a question that we ask ourselves as Colombian? Is that a gunshot or is it fireworks? Mm. And sort of that, that innocence was sort of, you know, it killed that day. So, so that was quite sad to witness. And then again, um, the conversation around the social groups, there were many, um, there were some kids who were taking a really uh, violent stance against people rioting and people protesting. Uh, so, so just getting into those conversations just became uh, really tricky as mm. well for them. And to understand that there were peers among them who were willing to just, if they had a gun, they would have just uh, held it and, and shot yeah. So, so that so that the violent mentality was something that uh, it was hard for us as a family to to process and to help them to navigate through. Um, again, we I am not from that area. There have been there are many many uh, people in that area whose um, parents or uncles have been kidnapped or murdered. So there have been real uh, victims of this war that we've had in Colombia for such a long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not that I understand that viewpoint. 
but I do understand where they're coming from and I do understand why they feel that there's a heightened level of threat every time that their lives are disrupted in such a way. Absolutely. And then, I mean, that brings us up to the you know, the departure in August 2021 and the the piece on Medium that, you, again, that we read, and I will put it up on our, our Facebook page and on Twitter and so on, but it says, you know, it ends with hasta siempre Colombia. It's like so long Colombia. And it's, it's pretty poignant, really, because it almost, I don't know, I don't dare say it, but it feels... It feels there's a finality there. It's like, well, my kids are, are going to be safe, probably end up going to university in, in Canada, uh, in this liberal you know, democracy in which you, <laughs> you know, enjoy a, a very privileged mm-hmm. lifestyle. It, 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 it was very poignant, that for me, that so long Colombia. So I don't know. It, it, it was very bittersweet. It was really bittersweet. We knew that at some point we needed to consider leaving the country just because, um, you know, the kids, they would have graduated in Colombia or not. Mm-hmm. And they would have, you know, sought opportunities anywhere in the world. Um, so we knew that day was going to come. We didn't know that it was going to be as a result of what we witnessed. We felt in a way that we were pushed out of the city and mm-hmm. not, not so much so, so because many, many families left Cali around this time. So we were not the only ones who thought about leaving the minute this day, this horrible day that we all witnessed. It was the first time. And, and again, I, I just want your listeners to know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege and I don't want to to make it sound like I just had a really difficult life by no means. Uh, my experience is the experience of just, uh, I don't know, 5% of Colombians. So I, I really do feel for the people who need to stay behind, who are trying to make the country a better country, such as yourself and just everybody else <laughs> who stays who's staying behind and just doing the right thing. Um, but for us, it wasn't the rioting. It wasn't mm. the people blocking the roads. It was the mentality of, of folks around us that we thought it was so such a big divide between mm. what the country needs and what these people are holding on to, which is fear, um, the, the sensation or the, the, the feeling that they can just or, or the notion that they can just hold weapons whenever they feel like it. And they can just be intolerant with those who think differently from them and they can just um, shoot. And, and there's no there's no introspection, there's no reflection, there's no sense that we really need to think hard uh, and, and search within our hearts and see what's going on to see if we can finally come together and we'll work together toward a better future for everybody. Again, I just didn't see that. I didn't see that in the conversations that the, kid had, the kids had at school and the social conversations that we had every time um, there's a Monsignor in, in Cali, uh, Dario Monsalve, who is very open about, you know, the church reaching out to the vulnerable and the poor. And to know that the speech from this gentleman who's trying really, that's what the church is supposed to do. And he will be taken as a leftist, mm. as a guerrilla friend, uh, as something that we don't want to listen to, as a communist. So there's such a big divide that we thought really... Um, we don't want our kids to be infected with this kind of thinking. <laughs> that's, that's basically the bottom line. And um, so in this country, they have the opportunity to to see all ranges of people. There's way more diversity. There's, there's a somewhat progressive agenda. Um, mm-hmm. And I think 
I, and I'm hopeful that at some point they're going to see that they can go back to their country, to Colombia, and contribute and building based on that basis. That's, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think, I think anyone who could and anyone who can in your position is, is entitled to and, and entirely within their right. Uh, exactly. And I understand that wholly. Uh, don't think that I haven't considered you know, upping sticks and leaving with my two children. Uh, I don't think it's the time right now, but I don't think, you know, it, it, in this really difficult period, uh, it has crossed our minds. Uh, we have discussed it uh, and, you know, sort of think where will, might the country be going? We're going into presidential elections in 2022, which don't look too positive to me. But uh, we don't have, unfortunately, any more time to discuss all of the other things that there are to discuss. But I, I would like to thank you right now from and on behalf of all of my listeners for sharing whether well, it's an intensely personal story of this journey of, you know, maybe naivety, but why not? Why can't we be naive to come back and gamble and bet on your own country to be improving? And you came down, you were making a life of it. Five years, again, it's not a short amount of time either to take this risk and three children, uproot them from comfort in Canada, comfort in Cali, but equally so. It's different, different comfort. And then, you know, okay, August 2021, it's time to go. So listen, uh, Dr. Paula Cuillos, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for listening to my story, for listening to our family's story. Um, we hope that it just gives up. I don't want to sound too hopeless. I know that there are really good people in Colombia trying to, to do the right thing. And I know, and I'm hopeful that the, the, those voices that are trying to build for everybody are going to come forward in the next presidential election. But again, it just needs a little bit of all of us, every single one of our 50 million Colombians that are and not just there, but around the country, around the world to, to step out of our comfort zones, to just to, to think about, you know, our neighbors, to think about those who are suffering the most. And that is, that is the main thing. That is the main thing. If I had seen that my community was willing to embrace that kind of thinking, I wouldn't have left. But mm -hmm. sadly, I didn't see that. So there we go. We, we might be back if things get better. Yeah, never say never. Never say never. I mean, we're here. We're, we're betting on Colombia. <laughs> but thank you again for your time. I will put up uh, Dr. Paul, Paula Cuillos' article on Medium. I'll put it up on uh, our Facebook page and, of course, on Twitter and so on. This uh, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation, very open. You know, Bogota to Toronto, thank you so much. I mean, you know, you have children to think about. Everything changes with children. And I know that people will have appreciated this conversation because many of us have, have been considering these ideas, but to have it and to hear it from a Colombian perspective makes it, you know, that much more, it resonates far more, you know, being a, a Brit and here and so on. It's like, oh yeah, okay, we just leave again. But Colombians trying to make the most of the country and then saying, listen, okay, it's time to go. So this has been episode 395 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've got a, a, a number of interesting interviews lined up for the coming weeks so please keep an eye out on our twitter feed at columbia calling and our facebook page as well we're all over social media you can tell what we're doing and uh, you know for those of you interested in sponsoring the columbia calling podcast it's on patreon 
That's patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And for as little as $2 a month, you can uh, sponsor the newscast by Emily Hart, our journalist in residence in Medellin. So thank you again for listening. And be sure to share the podcast with everyone you know. I've been Richard McCall talking to Dr. Paula Cuillos. Thank you again. And-